Hey everybody, welcome back to The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer. I have to say I've been looking forward to talking with our guest today for quite a while. Richard Peterson's career in wine spans a pretty amazing period of time, essentially the late 1950s to the early 2000s. And in fact, I think he's still making wine today. A couple of years ago, he wrote a book that is one of my favorite wine books out there. It's called The Winemaker. And it's packed with some pretty incredible stories about how wine in this country moved out of the dark ages. So this should be a lot of fun. Welcome everybody back to another episode of The Taste. This is Doug Schaefer. We have a guy in here today who I've been trying to get in for a while because he's got some wonderful stories. Uh, Dick Peterson. Welcome, Dick. Thank you. Nice to be here. And uh, as I just told Dick, his daughter Heidi was in here, uh, what, a couple couple months ago, and we had a great chat, and your name came up a few times. <laughs> I bet it for, did. <laughs> in, in, in nothing but in good ways. But before we get going, I've got to tell you, about a year ago, Dick was here picking up a donation, and we he and I were chatting, and he, he hands me this book. He says, Doug, have you seen my book? And I said, no. I said, well, here's a copy. He signed it for me, and it was, I said, great. And uh, it's called The Winemaker. We traded books. We did trade. I mean, we did trade books. <laughs> Thank you. I remember that. And uh, I took it home, put it by my um, bedside table, and I read that thing in five nights. It was Great. fascinating. And it was, it basically, it, it's Dick's story, um, autobiography. It tracks the wine business in California from the mid to late 50s all the way through the 2000s. Everyone who loves California wine should read that book. It's called The Winemaker by Dick Peterson, and it gives you the story of the early days. He pulls no punches. He tells it like it is, and it's a wonderful read. So congratulations. Thank you very much. There are one or two people who don't like it. Uh, the ones, <laughs> the ones that I wrote certain truths about <laughs> about in it. I can understand mm -hmm. that, but uh, from what I know factually about what the valley, I think you told it very uh, factual. Yeah, yes. I, I took care to be accurate mm -hmm. in everything I did. I have boxes of notes. As, yeah, that came through. What mm -hmm. just before we get going? What motivated you to write the book? What was the reason? As I said early in the book, it. Uh, I started noticing funny things happening. For example, the, uh, the very first day when I went to work for Gallo in 1958, I had never seen the inside of a big winery before. And here they hired me to, to get involved making a, a new uh, research department. Okay. Uh, they realized that they weren't very scientific about, uh, the whole industry wasn't very scientific about making wine. Didn't know anything about it because mm -hmm. prohibition had taken that away from uh, Americans. And... Um, so they wanted to put some science into it. So they hired me and hired others. And the very first day, they were showing me around the winery. And I saw grapes being crushed. It was September 1st, first Tuesday in September, right after Labor Day. And uh, uh, we got, uh, we saw grapes being crushed and pressed and the winemakers wearing uh, white uh, jackets running around here and there and taking samples and tasting and so on. And, we got to the bottling line, and uh, bottles, uh, they were using screw caps, of course. Right. And the bottling line was going like the devil, and clink, 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 the glass. I was very impressed with it, and all of a sudden, everything stopped. It just came to a halt. And I asked someone, nothing happened. Nobody moved. The people on the line just stood there. So I knew it wasn't break time. So I said, what, what happened? What's wrong? <laughs> oh, nothing, just a, a label change. Don't worry about it. And, and he said it kind of fast. I didn't- Label, label change. Label change, hmm. yeah. 
So I thought about label change. What could that mean? And uh, so then I watched. Pretty soon a guy came in with a little cardboard box, went over to the labeler, took the old labels out, put new labels from the new box up there. And then he stuck his hand in the air and waved his circle around a circle and started the bottling line again. And I thought, my gosh, I couldn't believe this. This is a modern winery back in 1958, but modern then. And I went over where the bottles were being cased in, uh, Mm -hmm. put into the cases, and uh, looked at the new label, and the new label said Chablis. Well, the old label (laughs) and all white wine labels in California in those days were named Sauternes. People today drinking wine probably don't believe that, but it's absolutely true. It is true, right. The, the regular wine, the, the three major wineries, uh, Roma was number one, Italian Swiss Colony was number two, Gallo was a, a distant third in size. And uh, somebody had told Ernest Gallo that maybe people are getting tired of, not the wine, of course, they couldn't get tired of their wine, they right. thought. Right. Although I had said to them when they interviewed me, that I, yes, I've tasted your wine, and I've tasted Roma, and i tasted Italian Swiss, so I tasted one, two, and three. Frankly, they all tasted alike to me. <laughs> and only when I went to Gallo did I find out the reason. is because they were all made of Thompson Seedless. They weren't made from white, gra- uh, white wine grapes at all. They were made from table and raisin grapes because that's what Prohibition had done to the industry right. and had done to California. It got rid of all the good grapes uh, in favor of the high-yielding but lousy winemaking, Thompson Seedless. And this guy said to Ernest, well, maybe people are getting tired of the Sauterne name, and we (laughs) ought to try something new. So we pulled out a name out of a hat here, uh, other regions of France, let's try this. So they were bottling some with the Chablis uh, label uh, as a trial. And as I remember, the test market was uh, Houston, so they Mm -hmm. uh, they labeled enough for Houston. And what surprised me was three or four months later uh, when uh, I talked to someone and I noticed they were using Chablis again. (laughs) And how come? Well, it's because the the sucker caught on. I mean, it really is going. They're selling like mad. And what surprised me was the same guy in the sales department. He said, you know, you'd be surprised at the number of letters we've gotten from people telling us how much better they like the new Chablis than they had ever liked the old Sauternes before. It was, <laughs> and all I could do is laugh. Because it was the same wine. Same, exactly. Oh. Same wine, same <laughs> bottle, same, you know, everything. I love anyway, it. Anyway, when I started <laughs> seeing things like that, I started making mental notes. And uh, pretty soon I had paper notes and I had memos of people that did done something really stupid or something very so you, good. you kept them all. I started keeping, and after 20 years I had cardboard boxes. And oh. so... You asked, why did I think of writing this book? Well, that's why. I just thought there's a lot of funny things uh, going on in the wine industry that are more fun than, you couldn't make them up. Yeah, uh, they're, <laughs> you they're couldn't more fun make than them up. fiction anyway, and so I put it together, and uh, it was fun to do. You know, I've, I've got to make a quick <clears throat> comment because I've threatened to do it, and I never have, and I wish I'd kept notes. I wish I'd kept notes on every winemaker dinner I've done in the last 30 it's years. It's not too late to start, Doug. I should, because... There's been, again, there's been things that have happened. It's like you can't make it up. And, yes. you know, to put them together. Yes. I might just call a bunch of my buddies, all my fellow winemakers, and say, give me your five, ten best winemaker dinner <laughs> stories and put those all together. I should do that. Well, invite them to make it up if they can't remember. <laughs> okay. So, great story about Gallo. But going back to the beginning, you grew up, you were in Iowa, correct? That's correct, and yes. 
And tell me about those years. I was well, just outside of Des Moines. It was okay. the early thirties. I was born in nineteen thirty-one, and one of the things that I didn't realize at the time, I didn't know it for about twenty years later, is that nobody was my age. I was born at the bottom of the depression, and the birth rate had gone way down. Okay, and so the kids that I grew up with were my age, but there weren't many of them. There weren't many of us. And it was, I don't know, I bet I was more than 20, I bet I was close to 30, before I realized that nobody is my age. They're either older, they're either older or younger than me. I never knew that. And that would explain that. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So you grew up on a farm? Folks yes, and, grew up on a farm. We, uh, we had uh, three and a half acres, three, 3.35 acres uh, uh, out in the country, a couple of miles east of Des Moines. And... Uh, it was a good thing we did because we kept a solid acre as a garden. And wow. most people don't realize just how much work it takes to farm an acre of carrots, lettuce, celery, tomatoes, potatoes, everything, sweet corn, popcorn, anything you wanted to grow, we grew. And uh, all during the 1930s when I was a kid, we simply grew most of our own food. Wow. I never had a slice of bread from a, a store of, I don't know, I must have been 12 or 13. Right. But my mom made all of our own bread, and we had, you know, meat and potatoes. So we had fried chicken all the time because I could catch chickens, cut their heads off, knew how to clean them. And right. I know all the parts of a chicken you want to hear about. <laughs> so... So tough, tough time growing up. Brothers and sisters? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> older sister, two years older. Younger sister, two years younger. And then uh, uh, Chuck, uh, six years younger. So somewhere early, first exposure to wine. Tell me about that. First exposure to wine was interesting because my dad was a uh, home winemaker. Okay. Everybody was a home winemaker during Prohibition and shortly after. Uh, you know, that, uh, that section of the... Um, Prohibition law allowed anybody who wanted to to make up to 200 gallons a year, provided that he didn't sell it. You could make it for homebrew, for homebrew for your family right. and friends, but you couldn't sell it. And so everybody suddenly became a home winemaker. And uh, the reason that Thompson Seedless uh, took over in California in Prohibition was that when people started trying to buy good wine grapes, and there were good wine grapes in California then. They'd spoil. They'd never get past Reno on the way east in a train, and they'd all spoil. And um, so they. So Thompson Seedless could ship better. Thompson Seedless and Table Grape could ship. Yeah. Right. And they'd uh, they'd make raisins. Uh, There'd be a lot of uh, grapes on the vine. Would be raisins. They'd ship those too. And they had when you add water to raisins. uh, Back in Prohibition, people didn't care so much about the taste or the looks or the flavor of wine, all they wanted was the alcohol. Wanted the alcohol. I found that a very interesting thing. Hmm. You would have thought, uh, in fact, <laughs> the people who started Prohibition certainly thought right. that we got to get rid of demon alcohol, demon rum, you know, this de- alcohol causes all the problems in the mm-hmm. world, we'll just get rid of that son of a gun and have Prohibition. Well, they got Prohibition and they thought life was going to be wonderful on earth then. What happened is, against all odds, people started worshiping alcohol. Instead of getting rid of it, it became alcohol worship. So that everybody's making their own wine and they're laughing about it and ha ha ha, yes, got right. a lot of alcohol, we make all. And so people went wild over alcohol. And it didn't matter what the wine tasted like, so you could get away with Thompson Seedless. 
And then when prohibition was repealed, all there was in the ground were Thompson seedless vines. There was no Shannon Blanc, no Columbar, not even Zinfandel, no, you no know, Zinfandel. certainly not Cabernet right. or Chardonnay, none of, of those. So it was all th- so that's all, what happened. All table and raisin grapes. And so the wineries that started up, Ernest and Julio Gallo, when they started their winery in 1933, they, they inherited 100 acres or something like that of grapes. And they were, guess what, Thompson Seedless and uh, Fersagos and varieties, Alicante, uh, grapes that we wouldn't plant today. Right. When this, um, that's comment, because uh, I was going to ask you later about the, the, <clears throat> the taste in America. <laughs> Yes. The, the wine taste and, mm-hmm. and you know, drinking, whether it's beer or spirits or wine. And one question, because the research I've done is, is right in that area, post-World War, well, post-Prohibition and World War II and Korean War, it seemed like the, the popular wines were sweet and or dessert wines, desserts being, dessert wines being maybe fortified higher in alcohol. Yes. So it was that quest for higher alcohol wines. That seems like that's where the trends were in this yes, country. Yes, exactly. And you know, the interesting thing is when I joined Gallo in 1958, it was the same as it had been in Prohibition, 1933, when Prohibition was repealed. Absolutely nothing happened in the next 25 years. And if you think about it, and you are a wine grower as well as a a winemaker, so you understand this very well. You don't just pull out healthy grapevines. Even if they're Thompson seedless, you don't pull them out. And so... Because uh, you can't really afford to. Ernest and Julio Gallo thought they couldn't afford to. Right. So they took the grapes they had and they made wine. They put it in bottles and started selling it or trying to. And they were very successful because Ernest was an excellent salesman. But they were selling Thompson Seedless labeled uh, Sauterne <laughs> as late as 1958 and 59 and 60. When you showed up, right. Yes. And so w- nothing really happened. I-, I felt like I was very lucky to be born when I was. Uh, not just to live through the the hard times of prohibition, but uh, to to get in on the ground floor of wine, since California had had a good wine industry before prohibition. Before prohibition. But prohibition destroyed it and destroyed it totally. There was just nothing left of it. Yeah. But people didn't care, and so the uh, the biggest selling wine at Gallo, by Gallo and by other other uh, wine companies, in 1958. You wouldn't guess, but it was Sauterne. Right. Uh, I'm sorry, it was not Sauterne. I meant to say... It's okay. It was was, uh, Sherry. Sherry was the biggest wine. Well, it's 16, 17, 18% alcohol. That's the popular Um, wine. And it was fortified, uh, and it was uh, uh, baked. You know, the the way you made uh, baked Sherry in those days... There's no sherry grape. They had Palomino, but Palomino was used as a table grape to make table wine. Well, the Spaniards learned a long time ago that Palomino is an excellent sherry grape. Right. Well, all you do is you take wine, fortify it, sweeten it, of course. That was the Mm -hmm. story. They they worshipped alcohol, but they also worshipped sugar uh, in America in those days. And... um, you, you put it in a tank and you heated the tank to 130 to 140 Fahrenheit <laughs> and held it for six weeks or eight weeks. And uh, you had to get rid of the SO2 first. And so people would occasionally put in a drop or two of peroxide just to get rid of the SO2. Right. Because sherry, uh, part of the sherry flavor is oxidation mm-hmm. and brown color, matterized uh, thing and so you made sherry well imagine that was the best selling the biggest selling wine in america (laughs) 
not just in 1933, but also in 58. Well, I got to tell you, this, you know, I, I'm familiar with the story because it, yes, it's in the book. It, yeah. It's in the book. And I got to tell you, the, you, know, here's, you know, I've got the light on reading the book and, you know, my wife's trying to sleep and I, every, you know, five minutes I'm laughing out loud. And she goes, what is so funny? I said, you're not going to believe this. <laughs> you know, you know, you know, Peterson said it again. Well, the one thing you said, if you said it once, you said 15 times in this book. It's, I love it. It's, I, I quote it to everybody. You just can't make good wine out of Thompson seedless grapes. And, and I tried. For oh, years I, you tried, and, no. and, and you're in the lab doing it. And but that's all you had to work with. That's it. And people never started carrying. Uh, people only started carrying in my memory. People started carrying what wine tasted like around 1960. Yeah. 59, yeah. 60, 61. And it was just about 1958, 57, 58, when Giulio Gallo started thinking, you know, I believe maybe they aren't just uh, tired of the Sauterne name. Maybe the wine isn't as good as it ought to be. Uh, we don't have any scientists here. We ought to hire some scientists. So they got the idea to start a research department. But, but that isn't why he won. The reason he won was not the people he hired. The, the reason he won, I think, is that he realized that Thompson Seedless is not any good for making wine, period. And that's what he, and he, did he learned. Uh, he planted, um, he took out Thompson Seedless and he planted what he called good wine grapes then. Mm -hmm. Well, good wine grapes in 1958 meant French Columbard, French Columbard. Uh, Chenin Blanc, mm -hmm. um, Petite Syrah occasionally, uh, Ruby Cabernet. Yep. Those were the good wine grapes, mm -hmm. and that's what he planted. No, uh, there were, uh, I may be wrong in this, uh, 1958, I've, I think I said there's not more than 100 acres, could have been 200, but not more than that, in the whole state of California of Chardonnay. Right. A couple yeah, hundred wow. acres. And that it amazing. was up in, uh, all in Napa or Sonoma. And Cabernet, same thing, probably 50, 100 acres total. That's all there was. Pinot Noir, I don't know if there was any, but there might have been 20 acres here right, and there. Right. And that's all there was. Well, uh, when you go from drinking sherry as an everyday drink, uh, you're not going to want to jump to Chardonnay and to Cabernet and Petit Syrah and so right. on, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. You, you won't. You have to go through this medium of... Uh, a Chenin Blanc French Columbard blend, which actually makes a terrific mm -hmm. white wine. It's a good white table wine. Not, a good, not as good as Chardonnay, but they weren't ready for Chardonnay. And so Gallo just exploded in sales. Uh, Roma died because they were owned by a liquor company, and liquor companies always, I think that's a rule I'd make, uh, liquor companies owning wineries always fail. Really, you can put that in the bank. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Roma died because they were not doing. They they thought people was were at into wine for the alcohol, and people aren't. Yeah. They even weren't then. Italian Swiss died because all they owned was Thompson Seedless, but Giulio Gallo got the idea. Uh, let's pull out some of the Thompson Seedless. The grapes vines are old now, and they're ready to be uh, pulled out. So let's replace them. Let's put a little Columbard in. Let's put a little Chenin. A little. Little uh, Ruby Cabernet and Barbera, even they put some of those in, and uh, they made such good wine that that's when I think I started to notice that people cared what wine tasted like. Interesting. Um, I want to. I don't want to leave this because we're okay. going to get the gallop. But you've got such a great story. I'm going to flash back real quickly, but right. I've got to read one quote because this was about 
the prohibition, and they either ship tops and seedless grapes to the home winemakers. This is from your book. Or they purchased something called a grape brick. Oh, yes. Which yes. was um, basically fresh skins. or it was, like a, it was dry. It was packed for the dry, and it had a label on it. You correct me if I'm wrong. And the label, so you order this grape brick. It's delivered to your home, wherever you are in the, the country. And it's packaged, and the label says, quote, Do not break up five grape bricks with the enclosed yeast pills and add five gallons of water with 10 pounds of sugar, as this might ferment. That's right. <laughs> in other words, this is how you make wine. I love that. That's that was the was. caution. That was the, that was the uh, caution. That, it was not an instruction. It, it was, was a caution. Do not do this. <laughs> I love that. And then they gave precisely <laughs> I loved it. the details. And then um, a quick question. So you started... I want to know where your love of chemistry came because you're, mm. you, I think, did it come from collecting ice cream wrappers? Is yes. That, so yes. I want to hear that story because that's fascinating to me. And well, the whole chemistry. During, uh, of course, we had no money uh, uh, growing up in the Depression, but we weren't alone. Nobody else had any money mm-hmm. either. So we weren't, I'm not, you know, pity me. It wasn't true. We were just all the same. And so anytime you could uh, get something free or get something cheap, you got it. That was right. what you lived with. You made your own food. You grew your own food and so on. And uh, uh, the state fair happened every August. And um, my dad is the one who told me that uh, you, could, uh, you could save ice cream bags because the ground, you walk around the state fair and there's ice cream wrappers everywhere, all right. over the ground. And Dad pointed out to me that you could send in the wrappers. And um, and I picked up a wrapper, and it said, save these bag for gifts, right on it. Hmm. So I picked them up, and, and uh, uh, you could send a postcard in, and they'd give you a little menu, I guess, of what right. you could order. Mm-hmm. And I saw this chemistry set. And, boy, that looked exciting. The way they, the way they explained it, uh, ChemCraft was the company name. Huh. And you could make all kinds of uh, colored inks, and you could make all kinds of things, funny-tasting things, and make uh, make things bubble and uh, stew and, and explode and so on. Well, that just struck me as good, a good idea. Exploding's good. So uh, <laughs> that's right. And so the trouble with it was what you had to, you had to send in a dollar with, I think, 10 bags or something like that, 10 ice cream wrappers with a dollar. I didn't have a dollar. I, I, right. As I remember, I didn't think I would ever have a dollar in my old life, probably. But you could go around that. You could send in a thousand bags. A thousand. A, a thousand. Okay. And get a, a, a free chem craft set. So that was easy. My mom took a sugar sack. We had all kinds of sugar sacks um, and flour bags, sacks, mm-hmm. and she'd sew a handle on it for me. So I'd wrap it around my shoulder, and and my dad took a. My dad could make anything out of anything. Well, he took a, a broom handle, mm-hmm. sawed it off smooth. He uh, drove a, a nail or drilled a hole at an angle, drove a nail down through it so that the nail stuck out at the end, make it easy to pick up ice cream bags. So I'd walk <laughs> around with this broom handle. I'd pick up the, stab them, you know, stab right. three or four at a time and then take the thing off, put it in my sugar sack. Well, I had a thousand bags. Shoot, I think I had them in a couple of days, three at the most. And uh, we sent it in. I sent it in, and I got my uh, ChemCraft set. How cool. And I lived in that. I did every, every experiment that they listed 
four or five times, probably more. That ChemCraft set kept me busy for the next three or four months. It kept you busy. And meanwhile, you were making and your I own... And I learned how to... I learned chemistry. You learned chemistry. Learned. And that's because yeah. you went on to Iowa State? I went to Iowa State. And studied, chem uh, studied my, chemistry? Well, or? my intention was to go to chemistry, and I started in chemistry. But all the other kids shamed me into going into chem engineering because you can't make any, quote, you can't make any money in chemistry, unquote. <laughs> and so I switched to chem engineering, but they had a... Um, they had a, uh, a branch of chem engineering called chem technology. Okay. The only way I could get through college, because we couldn't have, didn't have any money, I had to have a scholarship of some kind. And so uh, the best one I could find, I searched around for them, the best one I could find was Navy ROTC, okay. NROTC. Mm -hmm. And um, so I took the exam, and, and uh, you had to be in the top 2% uh, of the applicants. And uh, so I lucked out, I guess. Anyway. You didn't luck <laughs> out, you did it. Good for you. You nailed it. So I did. And uh, what it did is instantly it gave me a college education because it, uh, it guaranteed to pay for my books and tuition mm -hmm. and pay me $50 a month. Well, $50 a month back in 1948 that's was a, plenty a lot. to live on. You could get your room and board for 50 bucks easily. And so that's what I did. You had to then go on a summer cruise in the Navy, and I went on the light cruiser Springfield CL-66 down to... That's right. There was an, I remember reading that in the book. Down to Panama, and uh, my first experience there, and we dropped depth charges. We fired five-inch guns, and we did all that. And um, then the second year, we went to Little Creek, Virginia for amphibious training in the Marine Corps, because the Marine Corps is part of the Navy, and they okay. gave us that also. And then... Uh, the third year, we went down to Pensacola, Florida, the um, Navy uh, Navy Air Station. Okay. Uh, and that's where I fell in love with flying, and I wanted to become a Navy aviator. I wanted to make carrier landings. And uh, so I, I uh, when I graduated from Iowa State, uh, they're, they're paying me $50 a month and books and tuition for mm -hmm. three years required that I spend at least three years in the military. In the service after college. So I okay. went into the Marine Corps, and I figured, why not? There's no war on anymore. Mm -hmm. But son of a gun, the, the North Koreans attacked South Korea oh, right in then. 1950, and so uh, suddenly there was a Korean War, so I had to go there. And then when I got out of the Marine Corps, the Navy officer who signed all the papers for me to get out, he said, now you have a GI Bill, so you can go to college if you want. I said, I've already been to college. Well, I says, it doesn't matter. You can go back if you want. No, I can't. I said, I had Navy ROTC, and the government paid my uh, right. my college education, so I, I don't feel right about going. Oh, no, he says, you you, uh, you can go back, go to graduate school. You get a lot better uh, education. You'll get a better job. You'll make more money. You'll pay more taxes, so the government thinks it's worth it. And it was worth it. Makes sense. So that's what I did. So I ended up... Uh, going back to Berkeley You're for Berkeley. graduate school okay. and uh, master's in uh, food science because I, uh, I was experienced because I'd, I'd made wine at home using, following dad's recipe. Uh, How were uh, those wines, those homemade wines? Oh, I thought they were the best wines in the world. <laughs> every, Doug, every, every home winemaker you have ever met really honestly believes that the best wine, that the wine he made as a home winemaker would rank with the highest wines in the world. Right I have, up there with the best anybody's ever. I had. have to agree with you. Yeah, anybody yeah. I run into, yeah, at they tastings. Do. They and all think that, yeah. uh, 
And I, I had uh, evidence that mine was good. My, I only had one bottle explode in the car. Uh, <laughs> my wine must have been real good if only one bottle exploded. That was. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Um, so chem engineering from Cal, and then you got your PhD there also, right? Yes. Doctorate. Yes, I did. And um, I was a biochemist. I studied okay. all my stuff in biochemistry. When I graduated uh, in filling out the, the papers, uh, they said, well, you have your choice. You can call yourself a comparative biochemist. Comparative biochemistry was the title that was available. Okay. Or agricultural chemistry. You've taken the courses. You've taken the same courses. So the courses you've taken and everything will allow you to call yourself a, a biochemist if you want. Or, mm -hmm. And I did spend a lot of time biochemistry and food, uh, food chemistry right. courses. And... Um, so I thought, well, I, I'm planning by this time, I wanted to get into wine. Okay. And so I thought, well, comparative biochemistry doesn't sound very good for, for wine, but agricultural chemistry sounds better, so that's what I'll do. So my degree actually says agricultural chem. chemistry on it. <clears throat> and at that time, Berkeley, some people might not know this, at that time, Berkeley was, Berkeley was the ag school in the UC, University of California system, I've I, believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Berkeley at that time was the ag school exactly. in the system. Berkeley, uh, uh, Berkeley was a big campus even then. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a, they had a little, uh, uh, some acreage uh, up uh, closer to Sacramento, up at Davis, and that was where their, all their farming was done. And so it was a university extension at Davis. There okay. was no university up there. It was just, it was the just an ag extension. And when I'd go up there to get grapes or food, uh, oh, I don't know, white carrots, if right, I wanted to do research doing, mm -hmm. on white carrots or lettuce, uh, uh, garlic, whatever I did research on, or grapes or wine, I'd, uh, I'd rent, or not rent, I'd check out a, a university car. Okay. You could check them out and drive up to Davis, do what you're doing and drive back. And that's what I did. So I did spend quite a bit of time at Davis, but Davis was not a school on its own. So... You get out, you, so right out of, you got your PhD, you're out of Cal, you get your first job at Gallo. As you said, it, um, Julio was, so right then, right in 58, that's when he was making that move from Thompson Seedless, you know, to, to planting better grapes. So he was basically, they were saying, we need to do a quality move here. That's that correct. Kinda, and, um, and you were, you were going to be a big part of that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, sure, I was. Yeah, you bet. They, uh, they couldn't uh, actually use Thompson Seedless, for example, to make sherry because it didn't make good sherry. Right. It, couldn't, it wouldn't bake at all. You could bake it for six months, and it would just sit there and get dumber and dumber, but never sherry-like. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I was so wrong So one on of that my one. first projects they gave me is learn how, teach us how we can make sherry out of Thompson Seedless. And, of course, I tried and tried and tried. I, I did turn up the chemistry. I did find out the chemistry. All I had to do was uh, <clears throat> the grape varieties, which is almost no grape varieties, uh, the grape varieties that had natural ammonia okay. uh, sherified very quickly, but none of them did. Uh, uh, I didn't, when I, the, right, the way I found uh, the, uh, the ammonia secret uh, was... Um, I started, how, okay, how are you going to, as a new scientist, how are you going to try to find out how to make sherry out of this grape that you can't do anything else with? Right. And um, so what I did is I started putting things in. I put tartaric acid, more tartaric acid. I put citric and fumaric acid. I put uh, lactic acid, anything you can do. Put sugars in, various sugars, lactose, uh, uh, 
love you love, I mean, every, everything there is. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and then I put in all 22 amino acids that, were, that you could find. Uh, those 22 make up all the proteins in the world. Put all those in. Each one uh, separate uh, mm -hmm. in a batch uh, wine and put it in the 130-degree oven that we had in the lab. And uh, I wanted to make this sherry overnight, so it didn't. I didn't waste 30 days. I wanted if it didn't work overnight, I didn't. I'd throw it out. <laughs> and so I, that's not exactly true. I'd let it go three or four days right, usually. Right. Anything that showed promise, and the only thing that showed promise. Uh, first of all, you had to get rid of the SO2, so you wanted to oxidize it slightly. And then um, uh, some of the amino acids, there were five or six of the 22 amino acids that I tried that, had, that were a little bit sherry-like mm -hmm. after four or five days. They, there was something there. And um, why, why? And it took four or five days. And then I realized, well, must, maybe some of the amino acids are breaking down and others are not. Some are more stable than others. And so the ones that broke down, what would they break down into? And I said, well, logically, just look at the formula. If they're going to break down, they'll break down into ammonia and CO2. CO2 mm -hmm. is going to bubble off. So uh, if they break down, so the first thing I put in, I put ammonia in one. Put it in the, lab, uh, in the uh, refrigerator or the, the little lab yeah, oven that we yeah, had. Yeah. Came in the next morning, son of a gun. It was very sheriffed, you know. <laughs> and so I thought, my gosh, it's ammonia. Simple, simple, simple thing. addition. Wasn't legal to add ammonia to wine, uh, and then I, I uh, did something that I thought was kind of a clever thing. Uh, the two grape varieties that at Gallo would make good sherry. One was uh, Grenache, okay, a rosé grape, which you wouldn't expect, but it did. If you baked it, it would make pretty good sherry, and of course Palomino, the the, mm -hmm. uh, the Spanish grape. And uh, if you looked in down to the fine detail, you could find an analysis of very, very small amounts of ammonia in those. Okay. None of the other grape varieties that I could uh, find had any analysis for ammonia at all. They simply didn't have it. Wow. And, that, and I thought, well, that, that bakes, you know, that means ammonia is involved. Mm -hmm. And it did. And so um, we had a guy, a production manager, Charlie Crawford, my boss, he was... Uh, uh, kind of a, well, he liked to cut corners, I'll say it that way. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, Dick, let's, uh, this is the exciting here. Let's, uh, you can make sherry now out of uh, Thompson Seedless. Um, because I could. I mean, right. you put ammonia in it, boom, it goes into sherry when you cook it. And uh, so let's make 100,000 gallons. I said, wait a minute, it's not legal. You know, you've got to have approval for this. No, we don't want to get approval. If you get approval, they publish it. You know, BATF. BATF then was what TTB is today, right. the government agency, and uh, they'll give us approval, all right, because it's not... It's not, harm, uh, it's it's not, not harmful. It's not harmful. Right. It's okay. It's part of a lot of food. Uh, but um, they'll publish it. And, and our, we don't want to let Italians let, know about it. Let our competition it. know. So we want to keep this safe, you know. Yeah. So Dmitry Chelyshev, Andre's uh, son, who worked at Gallo, uh, he and I came in late one night, and we added, I got these bags, 50-pound bags of crystalline ammonium, ammonium carbonate. Late one night, you did that? Late one night, okay. we did. I'm we with did. you. We put it in, and we pumped it into, uh, into a 100,000-gallon tank of uh, Thompson Seedless. And they warmed the tank up. And by the time it was warm, it was already sherry. It had sherified very quickly. <laughs> and uh, 
then Charlie had a problem of how to get this approved by Julio. Yeah. And so he, we took samples into taste, and Julio uh, turned it down. He said, oh, it's sherry, all right. It's a sherified, but it doesn't have any guts to it. He said, there's no body. There's no, there's no oomph. It just doesn't taste like sherry ought to taste. And I told him, well, you could always blend some columbard and shannon in, you know, you yeah. make it to make it taste. No, I want something to use. I want to be able to use Thompson Seedless. And we arrived at the conclusion that you can't make anything out of Thompson Seedless. It's <laughs> like Dimitri's joke, it's just about water. <laughs> Oh, so meanwhile, hopefully, meanwhile, they were replanting and pulling out Thompson Seedless. They were. That's what you said earlier. They, they were. were. Gallo, they were uh, Gallo yeah. made a, a big deal of pulling it out, but Italian Swiss Colony knew nothing of this, and Italian Swiss was owned by Allied Grape Growers, a bunch of Thompson growers. They oh, weren't about to get rid of the Thompson grapes. That's all they had. And so uh, Gallo quickly beat Italian Swiss Colony in the market because Gallo wine suddenly became worth drinking, Italian Swiss was still trying to get by with Thompson Seedless. Well, isn't this so, fascinating? Because, you know, Gallo, you know, it's not that way now. They've done a wonderful job. They make some great, great, great wines right across the board. But for many years, when I first started out, Gallo was, everyone kind of poo-pooed them as, oh, that's not, that's not, that's just table wine, jug wine, it's not good wine. But from what you're saying, the credit needs to be given to those two guys, those brothers, for bringing wine quality out of the dark ages, if you will, and really doing yeah, it from what you're telling me. That is certainly true. Giulio Gallo deserves the credit. He could remember as a kid that his parents, when they planted their Thompson Seedless, uh, that there were other grapes, and, uh, and he liked, there was something about them that was better. And Giulio had the idea, well, I think we ought to be able to make this better. Maybe we can do better with better grapes. And so he started by putting in 30 acres or 40 and then 50 and then 100 and 150. And, and the wines he made out of French Columbard were terrific and the Shannon were terrific. Blend the two together and it was really terrific. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's when he, he pulled out all the stops. By this time, Gallo probably had about 10,000 acres of right. grapes by this, 1958. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, late 50s. Or, yeah, yeah late 50s, early 60s, years. yeah. So they had 10, 12,000 uh, acres, and so they, Julio just did 1,000 acres yeah. of uh, various, and pretty soon 2,000. And by about 1960 or 61, we had some good grapes to work with. And, uh, okay, they weren't Chardonnay and they weren't Pinot Noir, but they were good grapes compared to Thompson Seedless. Italian Swiss Colony didn't have anything but Thompson Seedless. They didn't have, even have many red grapes, just those whites. And so they were sitting there losing. And before, well, Italian, Tom, Italian Swiss was bigger than Gallo in 1958. By about 1961, Gallo was about even with them in size. By 1965 or 60, maybe 66 or 67, Gallo was double the size of Italian Swiss Colony. Wow. And clearly number one, because Roma had died along mm -hmm. the way. So Gallo just exploded in growth. And I think it was not so much that Ernest was such a good salesman as it was that Giulio had put good grapes he put in. Put good grapes in the ground. And it wasn't, he, his idea was to start a research department with scientists who would, who would put science into their winemaking. And we did that. We certainly did. did. We did a lot of, we made a lot of big changes. I had kind of a free hand. 
and at Gallo, and I, I put a lot of major uh, improvements in in their winemaking just by bringing some science, just bringing science and a little bit it. of common sense into some of what they were doing. So I did a lot of good things there, but I don't deserve the credit for, for their success. The credit to their success, I think, was Julio's planting good, planting grape good grapes. That's where the uh, quality showed up. I'll give you more credit. So I've got <laughs> well, to ask. I've got to ask you something. <clears throat> Hardy Burgundy. Yes. Was that your baby? Uh, it was no one person. Yes. Okay. It was, it was a group, it, group I effort? certainly worked on it. You were yes, worked on. But I, I was no one person can claim credit because we all kind of worked together. Dmitry Chelyshev was big in it. Uh, we uh, we tried. You see, uh, all of a sudden in 1959 and 60, we had a few good grapes to use. Right. And so we had tastings um, every morning about 11.30 and then every evening about 5. And we would taste till about 7, Man. usually, because we'd work on blends all during the day. And we tried everything. Uh, Petit Syrah was available, and we turned out... Petit Syrah was... Uh, well, interestingly, to today's winemaker, Petit Syrah was readily available around the Central Valley, right. but the grape we call Syrah or Shiraz was not available. There was none. Okay. In fact, Petit Syrah is a better grape in my judgment anyway. It makes better wines. Uh, the, the berries are smaller, and I think there's just a more pizzazz to it. But the fun that I had in the first two or three years at Gallo was some of the experimental things like the sherry, but... More than that, it was making new wine blends out of these new grape varieties that Julio was turning up with. How fun. And sometimes he'd have only five or six grape vines. We didn't have any acreage. Right. But we still did it. We picked those separately, and we'd From, go out and pick them ourselves yeah. and make wine. And uh, some of those were terrific. And uh, we, we figured out ways to put Ruby Cabernet and Barbera together, and that was Hardy Burgundy with a little Petit Syrah. And boy, did it make a good grape. A good, well, let me wine. tell you, uh, let me tell you how good it was. Because <laughs> <laughs> when I was in Davis, I had a bunch of bunch of buddies and I, we were all skiers. So oh, we, yeah. we'd sneak up to Tahoe, you know, as often as we could. With some hearty burgundy. When, and, it was, and this is back in the, no one ever uses Boda bags anymore. I don't understand that, but we always ski with Boda bags, you know, full sure, of wine. Sure. And uh, we'd stop at, the, <laughs> stop at the grocery store and buy a, Chug a hearty burgundy and fill up our Boda bags and yes. off we go. Oh, that's you're my kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, never, I never could burgundy understand why it was, we were so tired at the end of the day, but it makes sense now. Hardy burgundy took off from day one. Yeah. It, uh, uh, Ernest, of course, thought his name of hearty burgundy was what did it. <laughs> we all knew it was the grapes that went into it that did it. What was it like working with those two guys? I mean, they were just like, it, it sounds like they were night, well, they weren't night and day. They just each had their own area. They were pretty and night and day, actually. Yeah. I never heard Ernest um, compliment anybody. Um, I heard him raise Cain with a lot of people. Uh, I, I suppose I stood out by, he never raised Cain with me. He never raised his voice at me. And I think it's because he knew that what was going on in the lab he liked, and so he didn't want to. <laughs> anyway, um, Ernest was difficult from that point of view, but uh, he used to invite me to lunch. I'd go have lunch with him. Uh, so I think that he—I think he liked me or liked what I was doing. Anyway, uh, we we got along just fine. But I never heard him compliment anyone, anyone. even me. He didn't compliment, hmm. but he uh, he knew what he wanted, and he wanted work out of people, and he wanted success out of them. Julio was, he wanted the same thing, but he knew that people were people. And uh, Julio had um, 
they were already on by the time I got to Gallo in 1958. Julio uh, was already having what was called Paisano parties. <laughs> One of the wines we did we made at Gallo was Paisano. Paisano, Paisano I've seen was that label. I remember that. 100% Zinfandel. Okay. 100% Zinfandel, but it didn't say that anywhere on the label. Just Paisano. Paisano. The, and their announcement was Paisano means friend, and that's what that's how they advertised it. Uh, at, but it was 100% Zin and a light, much lighter weight than Hardy Burgundy, right. a, a lighter wine, but pleasant wine. All a little sweet. Even the Hardy Burgundy was a little sweet. And uh, Giulio would have uh, Paisano parties among the lab people. The winemakers, there were probably, um, oh, probably seven or eight winemakers. Uh, then the research department, there were about six or seven of us there, and winemakers, we were winemakers mm -hmm. there. And then the analytical section, who did only analysis. Um, and he'd invite all these guys. Uh, there were no women working in the lab at all. Um, so we all, it was, it was all a guy thing. And um, about every three months, Giulio would announce a Paisano party. <laughs> and it would take place right there at the winery. And uh, so we'd all get hardy burgundy and, and uh, whatever white wine was experimental and the... Uh, a golden muscat that we mm -hmm. uh, had made into champagne, uh, sparkling wine. And because um, they, they still didn't have a sparkling wine. Gallo didn't come out with a sparkling wine until around 1965 or so. Uh, and so we, uh, we, all the wine that we drank at these Pazano parties, were, they were lab tests lab. that we had done, that I had done or Demetria had done or somebody. And so we uh, made a lot of friends among there, but we also started uh, taking notes <clears throat> who likes this wine, who likes that wine, and so on. And it gave us clues to what we ought to come out with. Interesting. Well, we That's ought smart. to show to Ernest, and, uh, and then he would come up with a name for it. Uh, uh, one that was made up was uh, Pink Chablis. Uh, you know, Chablis has never been pink until Gallo came out with that name, Pink Chablis. I don't know who got the name. It was not Ernest, but it was someone who worked for Ernest. Interesting. Pink Chablis come out with a new product, and uh, <laughs> and uh, they put an ordinary pink wine, uh, and it didn't sell. It wasn't successful. Right. And they brought it back to the lab, do something about it. And <laughs> they bring it back to the lab and do well, something. Well, they did. About you know, it. Clean, do, fix it. Fix, fix it. it. They didn't know what we were going to do. Right. Put some grape variety, something yeah. else in it. I'd been making sparkling wines with Dimitri all along, and. Dimitri went to uh, move down to Mexico. He left Gallo. And so I was doing all of that. And my idea was to carbonate, just simply carbonate it. And I remember Julio saying, well, you mean pay the champagne tax? He, I could tell he didn't like that idea. I said, no, I don't mean that at all. I mean, just carbonate it a little bit. Just a little bit, right. They had a wine called Ripple, which was carbonated, but you couldn't ever say carbonated. And I thought we got away with something with the, T, the BATF people mm -hmm. when we called it Ripple. Because Ripple kind of implies uh, carbonation right. in a way. And it was a lightly carbonated, but you didn't pay any champagne tax on it because it was below the level. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I said, do that. And so, well, okay, do it and bring us a sample of it. So I did that in the lab. And, and boy, they, it, they liked it a lot. We went ahead and bottled some, and it exploded in sales, and Pink Chablis just took off in the That's market. That's amazing. That's why Ernest never said anything bad to me. No, you fixed it. <laughs> <laughs> they, they should have called you the fixer. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so one, you were there for a long time. Ten, ten years, years. Ten actually, years. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there's this guy, Andre Chelichev. And yeah, so there's well, a there's a move from 
Gallo up to the Napa Valley and Andre. Right. Andre, uh, Andre was anxious to get married. Dorothy Andrew was working there in the she was sort of the secretary that we all use. She typed all of our stuff, and she was the one gal in the— And um, uh, I didn't know it, but Andre was anxious to retire. He was 66. Well, he was but up he, here at BV, right? Yeah, he yeah, was yeah. at BV, and, and Dorothy was the, the, uh, the, the, secretary, the secretary, the, the one secretary that we had. And uh, he wanted to uh, retire— uh, and uh, divorce his wife and marry Dorothy. Hmm. And Dorothy's going to divorce her husband and do the same thing. Well, they did that. And uh, it was a marriage made in heaven, I think, because they really got along great. I mean, that, that was, it was good for Dorothy. It was good for Andre. Mm -hmm. And they, they just, they mm -hmm. was really did the right thing. Many, many years. Oh, yeah. 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 And uh, uh, so he was anxious to leave in 1957. And I knew Andre because my work with Dimitri, I'd become close with Andre for four or five years before I left Gallo. Okay. He interviewed a lot of people over a couple, three-year period, and uh, I was the one he picked. And interestingly, um, he picked me not because I impressed him as being uh, the best winemaker he interviewed. I don't know who that was, hmm. but he didn't ever ask me that. He just assumed, since I worked with Dimitri, that I knew winemaking. And Dimitri had told him, you know, right. we'd been, uh, uh, what we had done. Because uh, I asked Andre uh, one time, why did you pick me? And he said, to tell you the truth, he said, I knew you could make the wine because I, Dimitri had ta I talked, so I, I, knew you, I knew you were okay as a winemaker. The real reason that I that you stood out is Madame de Pans, who was the queen. You know, she she uh, considered herself royalty. She was the daughter of George. Daughter Latour, of George de la Tour, and, and after she, he died and his wife died, um, she was the owner, right? She was the owner okay. of Beaulieu Vineyard. Well, uh, <laughs> she considered herself royalty. Okay, and I mean real royalty. Uh, there's a uh, another interesting story there. Uh, a lot of people get rich. But they don't have a title, and they want a title sometimes. Well, she wanted a title. Her father had always <laughs> considered her, our, you know, my little princess and so on. Well, uh, but she wanted a title. Well, they had uh, property over in Bordeaux, which George de la Tour uh, still had because he had come from Bordeaux. Right. And not the, not the Latour family, a different family, uh, distant relatives okay. maybe. Uh, not Chateau Latour, uh, Latour, but his name was Latour. Um, and so they would go over there all the time, and I suspect I, I wouldn't I couldn't print this in the book because I, I don't have proof of it, but I always suspected that she had her eyes open for somebody with a title. Ah. Well, sure enough, she married Count de Pans. There you go. Count de Pans. Uh, then when the old when the Count de Pans' father, the Marquis, died, then Count de Pans got elevated to Marquis. Well. When she married Count de Pans, she became Countess, ah. Countess de la Tour de Pans. Well, uh, so then when uh, Andre... the father died, he was promoted to a Marquis, so that made her Marquise de Pans. So when she hired me at Andre's insistence, she hired me, uh, she was Marquise de Pans. And, and uh, that, was, that suited her very well, right. she thought. But she was difficult to work with. But the reason Andre hired you was because... He thought <laughs> that I uh, was flexible enough that I wouldn't quit over with some little uh, rickety thing that she would insist on. For example, 
BV in 1968, the year that I went, was there the first year so that I was there. So 68, okay, 68. Uh, 1968, BV owned the Cabernet Sauvignon market. There was really nobody close. Engelnock had uh, some nice Cabernet, but it was a 20th the size of BV. And uh, BV Private Reserve Cabernet was the Cabernet. Uh, Krug had a nice Cabernet, but wasn't quite in the standards of Gal of. Uh, BV, BV uh, Reserve Louis Martini had a nice Cabernet, nice cab, but, but again, BV didn't quite, Reserve, that was the one. BV when we Private moved, Reserve was it. Okay. Yep, I, I was that. told very early, I uh, hadn't been there more than a couple of months, uh, to take two barrels of uh, Private Reserve Cabernet, and we were, uh, we were aging the, the 1964. We're just getting ready to take it out of uh, barrels, getting ready for bottling <clears throat> in 1968. Right. We'd, uh, we'd age it two years. And uh, maybe it was the 65. Anyway, I had to take two barrels of private reserve right out of the barrel racks that we had and, and uh, dilute with water half and half. So you made four barrels out of it. Put in the uh, acetobacter uh, uh, starter, vinegar starter. And I had to make four cases or four barrels worth of, of uh, vinegar for her, wine vinegar. And she didn't want ordinary wine vinegar, uh, ordinary varieties for wine vinegar, which would be the normal thing you'd do. She insisted on private reserve Cabernet Sauvignon. <laughs> well, that's the kind of thing she would require, and Andre thought that I was flexible enough that I would go ahead and do it for her, and I wouldn't get mad and quit. And he said anybody else that was suitable as a winemaker, he thought would probably get mad and quit over her doing things like that. And you did it. I did it. You're yeah. a good soldier. Well, <laughs> well, but but it's a heartbreaker because two full barrels of BV Private Reserve. That's Can forty. That's forty that cases of forty cases of wine. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. Oh well, you got to keep the yeah. Countess Marquise happy. But she was so proud of her. Uh, she was so proud of her wine vinegar um, that uh, she'd have movie stars, you know, Rock Hudson, to come up and stay. Uh, huh. But lots of uh, movie people. Uh, uh, came up and they'd stay there for a weekend. She was the, because she, she was Social, the Marquis. Socialite. Uh, Marquis, I yeah. mean, and she, she was, she lived this, this high life and had these little baby carrots out of the, the her own uh, garden there that Hans would uh, would bring in to her and she'd serve these to people and then they'd ooh and ah over all this kind of stuff and that's what movie stars do apparently and, and so she lived in that movie star life uh, thing and... Uh, uh, well, you, well, I just accepted her because that's, you know, she's the one that gave me the job. So, Well, uh, you got the job, but this I'm, I'm telling your story from the book, so correct me if I, I get this wrong. But the impression I got, it was very, we made it very clear. Um, her father gave her the impression that the winery was there to serve or service her. Yeah, that's correct. And basically uh -huh. the winery was there to provide for her. And, and so the money would come, money would flow from winery to her. But never ever would money have to flow from her to the winery. Thus, yeah. uh, thus no, very few improvements. Andre oh, and oh. you were working with just archaic equipment, yes. and yes, and people have asked me many times. Um, Andre got so much praise as being the best winemaker around, certainly the best one in America. Mm -hmm. Did he deserve that? 
And I always tell him, oh boy, did he ever deserve <laughs> it. He deserved it in spades, and here's why. Yeah. Uh, he not only make, made the best Cabernet around, the best Pinot, the best, all, whatever, right. whatever he grape he had, he made the best wine better than anybody, but he did it with baling wire and duct tape. He just, uh, he didn't have good equipment. When I left Gallo, and Gallo did have good equipment, uh, common grapes, but good equipment back then, and uh, people assumed that BV had the finest equipment and did everything perfectly, but they didn't. Andre had to use uh, uh, the first time, um, the first crush, the first day of crush in 1968. Of course, Chardonnay was the grape they brought in. Right. And uh, uh, I looked at the crusher and I looked at the, the uh, little wooden Is it plywood drag conveyors they had. and, and Wooden uh, conveyors. Yeah, yeah, wooden. Oh. Everything was just ordinary plywood, and Bill Amaral was the the guy that built it all. He's a really good carpenter. He make could make anything, but that was his job to build whatever needed to be done. And they didn't have any stainless steel there. They had uh, cast iron and brass uh, pumps and fittings and so on. And and so you have iron and copper getting into the wine. And and uh, uh, Bill Amaral, uh, the first the first crush when they brought the grapes in. Um, We'd soak up the wooden conveyors uh, because they've been dry for a whole year now, and they're going to leak if we don't. So we soaked them up. We thought they were ready, but they weren't quite. In this one spot, there was a leak. And so um, uh, Madame Japan's daughter, uh, Dagmar, and her family, she had four, uh, three daughters and a son, and uh, and, uh, her, uh, her husband, came down to see the crush, the first grapes go right, through. Right. And a son of a gun, some of this wonderful Chardonnay juice that's very expensive. Um, and by that Chardonnay was selling for probably $1,000 a ton even then, back hmm. in 1968, because there was so little of it. And uh, so this Chardonnay juice is going out on the ground because the, the wooden conveyors are leaking. And I first thing I said when I saw that, when I first had spent time with Andre all summer, that the summer before that, mm-hmm. I told him, you know, when the crush gets here, aren't we going to put some stainless steel in for some for the white grapes? And well, he said, I would love to. I so wanted stainless. I've been preaching, uh, oh. begging. I get down on my hands and knees and beg to Madame de Pans, Marquise de Pans, you call right. her Madame. To, to give me some money, oh no, she'd say, absolutely not. That winery has the function of giving me money. That winery's function, total function, is to keep me in the spirit, uh, in the life that I live yes, now. my lifestyle. Yes, uh, it, that's what it's, uh, nobody says that I have to give money to it. My father, she'd shake her finger at me and say, my father promised me that winery would take care of me. I'm pretty sure that George Delatour, he's a chemical engineer himself uh, earlier, hmm. and uh, when he started that company, I'm pretty sure he did tell her, you're my little princess, sure. and that winery will take care of you. He didn't mean that she would never have to fix anything. <laughs> it's like you giving somebody a brand new car. Well, you got to change the oil sometimes. Well, she, she had selective hearing on that. She, she did know, have selective had, hearing, yeah, so she, she thought that uh, that winery would take care of her because he promised me, but she didn't remember if he ever said that, well, you will have to take care of it by replacing things and fixing things. And so that's what happened. And, and uh, anyway, that's why I was hired, Andre said, because uh, well, cause I wouldn't quit. I wouldn't get mad and Well, quit. listen, you know, hats off to Andre, as you said, 
for being a fantastic winemaker dealing yeah. with that type of he equipment. He lived with that. And yeah. and you did too. Yeah, that's true. You did too. Yeah, so true. did when did Andre move on? When were you solo? Well, I was solo the first year. At VV, uh, okay. He, he, um, or 69, 69. Uh, or 69, um, 69. Uh, yeah, 59 okay. from Gallo. Yeah. 69, and so uh, uh, 68, we were together all through 68. Okay. Starting with 69, I was there. But then in 69, uh, and uh, to make things worse, uh, it was on my birthday, June 5th of 1969, Hugh Blind bought uh, BV, and, and I bear a little bit of the guilt of that. I what think. year was that? It was right away? 69. You, One year, well, a year and a half. So right you'd now. only been there a year? A year and a half, Okay. Yeah. And you bought them? Well, they bought them, but they kept me, I mean, I they still had the on. job for another four or five years, but uh, another five vintages. I was winemaker. Uh, I was there six vintages, but okay. five more after them. But I was fighting them the whole time. Uh, and tell me about, tell everybody about Ublind, just background in case well, they don't Ublind, know. They're a big corporation uh, out of yeah, the East, big right? big corporation. Uh, they, were, they were 100% sales. They, they were okay. like earnest in that direction. Uh, salespeople, not um, manufacturers. They didn't want to be, they'd only do the minimal manufacturing. They bought the Lancer's label, for example, the Lancer's okay. brand. And then they, uh, to make Lancer's wine in Portugal, they made a, a, a joint venture uh, with the Fonseca company th over there. And liquor and liquor was big too, weren't they? Smirnoff vodka. Uh, Smirnoff, they, so okay. they bought the Lancers label and then they made it and marketed it. They bought the Smirnoff vodka label and they made it and bottled it. So they were, they were big in vodka and they made a lot more money in vodka than they ever did in any of the wine things. So naturally they had that liquor mentality. Okay. You know, we make our money on booze, so that's where, where our, our love is, our, that's where our heart is. And uh, they thought uh, in terms of day-to-day, -day, uh, uh, the dollars are where the, where the alcohol is. Mm -hmm. And they didn't grasp, they didn't know what BV was when they bought it. They had no idea what they bought when they bought it. Uh, Hugh Blind, Doesn't that just make you shake your head and yeah, go, what, yeah. weren't Stuart you doing Watson your, weren't you doing your a, homework? Um, just, well, sure. Stuart Watson uh, was a, a very nice person, a very nice guy, a marketer, a, a salesman. But a very pleasant guy. I liked him a lot, but he didn't have any common sense when it came to... He, he didn't have any idea what he bought when he bought Beaulieu. Hmm. He thought it was a winery. We got a winery now. You know, he could have bought, uh, uh, I don't know, pick a little... Uh, right. Because at the time, we, had, we moved out in 73, and that's still BV was the, you know, the go-to. You know, it was the gem of the valley. Yeah. Uh, 73 was, was my last vintage there, okay. actually. Uh, I helped, uh, I consulted for Teo Rosenbrand, uh, who became winemaker after me, uh, for the next year. I went to high school but, with one of his kids. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah, Ron, yeah. Ron, uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Ron and Rick. Oh, great. There is, is, Rick died, and then, or no, Ron died. Oh, Ron died, yeah. And is Rick still around, I, I guess? I think he is, yeah, still, I see him uh, around. Okay. But uh, well, great, any, great family. Great family, great family. oh, great family. yeah, I yeah. loved them all. Yeah. Paula was not, they were all, uh, yeah. we, well, okay, that's another story. All yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, I stayed with Hugh Blind a long time. I, I gave them five full years after, mm -hmm. they, uh, after they bought us. But um, I could not make them see, um, I guess the best way I should tell you, the, the, best, uh, the best way to tell it, I guess, is just tell exactly what happened. Um, I got a call from uh, Stuart Watson's uh, secretary. Mm -hmm. Would I meet Mr. Watson at the Oakland airport. Uh, 
wanted to talk to me. And I said, sure. So I went down there, and uh, he was between flights somewhere, <clears throat> came out of his way to, to get that close. And um, I walked in the room, and son of a gun, my heart just dropped because it not only was Stuart Watson, but it was a guy named Dick Oster. Okay. Dick Oster was a, I think he came from Pepsi-Cola. Okay. He was the guy they had just hired to become the head of Italian Swiss Colony. And I thought, oh, no, I know what they're going to do. They're going to want me to start using all these Thompson seedless grapes that Italian Swiss Colony has and make wine for them. This is like your recurring nightmare. Do you still have nightmares about Thompson seedless? <laughs> yes. I hope not. Not not anymore, Dick, please. Not now, no. Good, thank goodness. Okay. No, but I, when I saw Dick Oster, I thought, oh, gosh. Oh. I just met the guy. I just met him a week or so earlier. And... and um, Sure enough, that's what he did. He uh, Stuart Watson uh, start, started out very complimentary. He wanted me to make me, uh, put me in charge of all of their wine. Uh, Lancers in Portugal, uh, BV, Inglenook, uh, Italian Swiss Colony, uh, Gancha. They were working with Gancha in Italy, and, and uh, they wanted me to oversee all of their winemaking. And I said, well, yes, I, it, it would be very busy because there's a lot of miles between them. But, right. but I could do that. And... Uh, and uh, then he pulled the uh, thing out of the hat, and he said, well, when can you move to Hartford? Hartford, said, Hartford, Hartford Connecticut? Connecticut? Hartford, Connecticut is where the head office of Hubline was. Perhaps still is. I don't know. Uh, anyway, I said, well, why would I do that? I, the, all the wineries yeah, are I'm, everywhere I'm, but Hartford, yeah, right. Connecticut. And uh, I have to... If I if I do anything good in winemaking, it's because I'm at the winery. I smell the tanks every day. I see if there's a problem. I boom, I fix it right, right away. That's why the wines are good. If I were in an office in Hartford, I couldn't do that. Oh, he said you can you you're flying first class now. You can fly first class anywhere. You have an unlimited budget. You can go all the time you want. In other words, move your wife to Hartford, but then I go everywhere else. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I, I said, I really appreciate it, but, you know, I can't do it. Uh, if you really want to know uh, the problem with Italian Swiss Colony, it is that they don't have any decent grapes. Oh, we got all the grapes in the world. Would you realize why we bought them? They got thousands of tons. Of, oh I said, yes, I know, but they're Thompson seedless. <laughs> what do you mean? That's the best grape? I said, no. Oh, no, my gosh. It's not. After I'd gone through all of this problem yeah. with Gallo trying yeah. to make something, anything right. out of it, and uh, they said, well, uh, you can make it. We know you can do it. And I said, no, I can't. And I don't know anyone who can. I, I just don't believe it can be done. I said, if you hired me, if I, if I said yes, I took this job, tomorrow I would start immediately going out there and talking to growers at Allied Growers and trying do my, to do my best to, to get, convince them to take out their Thompson grapes and replace them with, I don't care yeah, what, with anything. some wine grape. Right. And uh, it would just be, a, he said, oh, that'd be, that'd be a calamity because we have a partnership with Allied right. Growers and that we don't want to make them mad. And I said, well, I can't take the job. I just, no. I can't do it. And I knew then I'd have to leave the company. I did stay another year and a half or so. So that was, that's what happened. And that then, was why I left. Yeah. I would never have left BV. I, I, would, I left Hubline. I didn't you leave You left BV. Hubline, right. Um, because anyway, because then they sold, they sold BV. No, they sold. Um, they sold themselves. Hubline had to uh, had to. Hubline lost so much money. They paid big bucks for all right. those Thompson seedless grapes and right. for Italian Swiss. Italian Swiss pretty much failed, which was predictable because they they had not the right grapes, and uh, 
it cost Hubline so much that they had to sell themselves. Hubline had to be sold. Right. And they sold, was it Diageo or was it somebody? Okay. Uh, that's right. Picked them up and then they went uh, another, uh, they, they've gone through a couple of a couple sales. Levels. So Hubline is no longer the big thing that they them. once were. They were booming there for a while, but they killed themselves when, yeah. they, when they bought Italian Swiss. So you moved on and you moved to down to Monterey. Monterey. And, and that was... Uh, Monterey you talk about education. It was worth. Uh, well, Monterey had such an unbelievably different climate. And this is mid seventies, uh, right? 70, yeah, seventy three, right, seventy four. Right. Mm -hmm. I went down there in seventy four. Was my first vintage down there. Uh, seventy three was the last vintage at BV, and uh, and I spent uh, from from right after the seventy three season until next year designing the winery to build down at Monterey. And we, wow. got, to, we got enough of it build, built to uh, crush grapes in 74, mm -hmm. which, you know, you can do, and we did. Mm -hmm. The winery wasn't finished by any means, but it was enough. I got the crusher going and all right. that, and the tanks and presses and so on. Um, and growers, uh, they were nice people. Uh, they were farmers from uh, McFarland, California, down by Bakersfield, and uh, they'd been farmers their whole lives. They'd grown up there, and their grandfather was the name of the town of McFarland was named for their grandfather, McFarland. Okay. <laughs> and uh, when they noticed that nobody's planting any grapes in Monterey, but look at this. According to the textbooks, all the coastal counties uh, up and down California, they all have the same climate. It's Napa Valley. Right. And so they thought they had a Napa Valley on their hands in Monterey County. Uh, they could have if they had gone farther south in, in Monterey County. Hmm. But the problem in the, in the north end of Monterey County, uh, it's, it opens out in Salinas Valley uh, right to the ocean. There's no mountains between the ocean and the vineyards. It's flat land all the way to the, the ocean. And so all the, uh, the summertime fog comes in, it's hugging just... the ground, and it'll go in down to King City. It'll go in 60 miles, 70 wow. miles. And so what you've got is... A climate that is basically colder than anything in Carneris here, mm -hmm. all the way 60 miles inland. If they had gone below King City, yeah, they might easily have built a Napa Valley down there because the climate's very similar. Wow. King City clear down to Paso Robles is kind of Napa Valley-like there. It's, a, it's very nice. The soil is okay and, and all right. that, but... Unfortunately, they thought they had the world by the tail, and so they went out and, and organized a bunch of um, limited partnerships. They got people with money to put in money, and, and the guy put in, you know, $3 million or whatever he'd put in. And right. they say, now, what kind, of what kind of wine do you like to drink? Oh, I like Cabernet. Well, then we're going to plant Cabernet for you. Oh, no. And so they planted Cabernet. And somebody else, what kind of do you like? Well, I like Petit Zara. So with that, we'll put that in for you. And uh, somebody else likes Chardonnay, they put Chardonnay or Sauvignon Blanc. Ooh. Well, the only grape out of all of those that is worth anything would be the Pinot Noir right. because it's very cold there cold. and it works. Riesling is quite good down there. Uh, even Pinot Blanc, the white-fruited variant mm -hmm. of Pinot Noir, is quite good down there. Um, but they plant, they plant a lot of Cabernet. They planted a whole bunch of Cabernet. <laughs> and okay... Um, uh, when I had an advantage when I was trying to get the winery built to uh, uh, in time for it was a race I was racing to to get enough of the winery built to crush. to crush and the growers the grapes were they were rushing to get ripened 
But when uh, September got here, they shoot the grapes were still little green berries, you know. They oh, were just, man. Oh. And then October 1st, when you'd be crushing here, we always started crushing uh, Cabernet early in October. Never in September, but early in October at BV. Right. Today it's different. They crush Cabernet in uh, September now all over the place, I think, up here. Mm-hmm. It's enough warmer. Yeah. Well, anyway, down there um, in October, the Cabernet wasn't ripening. And so I'm still building it on. Yeah. Uh, and so it went to, came to my advantage because I had an easy time getting enough of the winery built in order to crush because they kept wanting to pick. And I said, no, I can't pick your, your 19 bricks. I'm not going to pick Cabernet at 19 yeah. bricks. Get them ripe. So they'd go back and, and uh, pray some more, I guess, or whatever <laughs> they did. <laughs> However, they got grapes ripened. Praying, praying does come yeah, in handy once well, in a while. <laughs> it didn't work down there. Right. Except on Pinot, it did work real well. But uh, it was a real, a real shocker, mm. both to me and to everybody else. Yeah. Um, I knew because I was, we had our own, air, I shared an airplane with the insurance guy. Um, I'll think of his name here in a minute. He and I shared a Cessna 182. And so when uh, in 1970. Three, when I was considering going down to Monterey and then early in 74, I still lived up here. You lived up here, right. But working down there, well, I could fly down there in an hour. Right. And we kept the airplane, and our landing strip was John Trefethen's driveway. No, 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 and, no, no. Yes. No, 1974, you're taking off and landing your Cessna and on John and, Trefethen's yeah. driveway. He put those trees in there in 75 <laughs> or 76. That kind of screwed it up, I guess, then. Well, after that, but I didn't care. I was down there then. I had an airplane down there. But, I can't believe um, you were doing that. Um, yeah, I sure did. You know, so I'd take off at, I'd look at John Trefethen's grapes, his Cabernet that were right there, and they're nicely ripening. Right in October, ready mm-hmm. to pick almost. I'd take off, an hour later, I land in the Cabernet grapes down there, and they're still green, still they're green. still berries, they're not even ripening. Haven't and so color. I knew the climate was way off, the calculation was way off. The first Cabernet we picked in November, and I didn't like what I was getting. They were vegetal, they were bell pepper. The Cabernet just simply didn't ever ripen. So if you didn't bottle cabs, were you crushing it and making it, and then just bulking down it in, out? Uh, Paso Robles, I got grapes from down there. I see. Down where it was warmer. Uh, I you see. So you, okay, so you just so you made Cabernet, but I it made wasn't, Cabernet, it wasn't but from, I made it from down there. Got it. I had a lot of fun in winemaking down there because I got to experiment. And uh, is there anything you can do with these green tasting Cabernet wines? Yeah. <laughs> it turns out there is. Huh. When the uh, McFarlands failed, as they would fail with the, their ten thousand acres of grapes, and right. then uh, the winery, of course, was bankrupt because they owned most of the winery and. Uh, so the winery had to find a new owner when they sold us to Coca-Cola Company. Uh, Coke came into it. Another another corporation. Another corporation, yes. Uh, see, with uh, the McFarlands had made a deal with Foremost McKesson. Okay. Foremost McKesson had McKesson Spirits. Right. They were a large wine and spirits. They said a large wine and spirits distributor. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was a large spirits and right. wine, a little right. wine a distributor, little bit of wine, right. like the others, and uh, they had they'd failed miserably because uh, uh, even when we had good wines for them to sell, like the Pinot Noir, and the, right. they uh, their idea to sell a lot of wine is cut the price. That's <laughs> that's a liquor person talking. Right. If uh, if you got a bunch of bourbon, you want to sell more of it. Well, you cut the price, and it sells. That's yeah. how you do it. 
That's the difference. So that's one of the differences between spirits and wine. You do that to wine and you kill the wine. If you exactly. cut the price, you kill it. So well, anyway, they didn't understand that. So they all failed and uh, uh, Coca-Cola came out of the woodwork. Okay. Coca-Cola walked in with their hat in their hand and said, we don't know a goddamn thing about, right. uh, about wine. Tell us, mm -hmm. teach us, show us what we got. And I right. told them about the climate and all yeah. that. And, and uh, so they, they caught on very quickly. They're very, very good marketers, but also very common sense people. Nice. And nobody was more surprised than me when they turned out to be that good because I had my hands full of corporations mm -hmm. with first Hubline and then Fire, uh, Walker, foremost McKesson, I mean. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, Coke is gonna be worse. Well, in fact, they were infinitely better. Coke was a real good company. They said, can you do this? They didn't say do this. They said, can you do this? Or, what can we do? Okay. And I told them that, yeah, yeah, I'd been experimenting. And in fact, I found that uh, by putting uh, as little as three, four, or even 5% of these very vegetal Cabernets by blending that with anything I can buy from Gallo, as long as it's full-bodied and, mm -hmm. and uh, rich wine and dry, or Bronco or the Franzia people mm -hmm. there at uh, California Wine, whatever it's called, uh, the one at Ripa. And I made some pretty darn nice wines, red wine uh, with only 5% Cabernet. But the uh, the... Um, it's, it's inaccurate to say that the Cabernet grapes didn't ever ripen because that's not how ripeness happens. Uh, ripeness happens in grapes the same way it happens in a lot of fruits. You get, uh, let's say that uh, a strawberry, for example, mm -hmm. a strawberry might have 400 different components to the flavor. Well, some of them are gonna ripen early, some of them ripen later. Cabernet is the same way I found when I hmm. went down to Monterey. I found that some of the components of Cabernet flavor appear right away. They'll, they'll show up in October right. or, or in September right. even. But all of them don't show up until maybe November or later down there. What you can do, though, is the way you fix a problem when part of, the part of the flavor is developed and the other part isn't is you blend it with something where they've all developed. Okay. And so I did that. And I experimented. I blended with, with Gallo wine, with Bronco wine, and so on. Uh, putting a little of this uh, unripe Cabernet from Monterey in it. And the good nature of the good ones in the Monterey came right out. Came right out. And, it, and I made some very, very nice oh, wines nice. by blending small amounts of the Monterey wines with large amounts of Central Valley. Okay, got the cheapness from Central Valley and got the quality, <laughs> quality from, from the percent. So it, it worked. And, and I told him it was experimental. I said, I haven't, I haven't proven this anywhere, but I'll make you some if you want. Yeah. And that, so I did make samples. They tested it out with people that, uh, that they thought knew and said, well, you know, Dick, that's going to work. That, that really is going to work. We've, oh, nice. We oh, want to come out here with a, a program because we paid a lot of money for the Monterey Vineyard. Uh, we want to. Uh, we've got a new name. We bought the Taylor Wine Company in New York. Right. We want to call this Taylor California Cellars. Terrific name. I said, okay. We want you to make some wines. Uh, right. Make a, make a Chablis, a Burgundy, a Rhine type, or a, a, right. a Riesling type, and a and a, um, uh, a rosé. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we'll start with those four. And. Um, if you can, if you can guarantee that the wines will sell, I said, no, I can't do that. You, you're the salespeople. I'm not. I'm just a, a guy. Yeah, I'm just production. That's right. Uh, uh, I'll guarantee they're better. 
uh, well, does that mean you're going to, you'll guarantee if we give them to an expert here to taste that he's going <laughs> to say they're better? I said, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Right. If you put 26 good wine judges in a room, they'll pick it. Yes, it'll be better. But one guy, no, I, I can't tell you what one guy's going to pick. I mean, I won't even pick the same right. wine the two right. days in a row. Never seen a guy who could. No. Uh, but the more people you have in the room, the more sure I am that I can beat the, the uh, competition. And, and I said, I have to see the competition, though. You've got to give me samples of the wine you're trying to okay. beat. The wine turned out to be Palmasan, Almaden, uh, Charles Krug's uh, lowest one, right. and Inglenook. Well, I knew it could beat Inglenook. I knew how it was made. Right. And Masson didn't impress me much, and Almaden was the lowest of the bunch. It was worse. Uh, Almaden and Masson were buying all kinds of Central Valley wine and not blending good stuff with it. They thought they were... Just know, bottling were, it. Yeah. Right. Bottling it and uh, and trying to make people think that it was a mid-level. It wasn't. It was, it was poor. <sighs> so I said, yeah, I can, I can beat all those. So I got samples in the lab and, and did blind tastings, you yeah. know. And I had blends of of the uh, the red and the white and the rosé and the mm -hmm. uh, uh, Riesling type, uh, Germanic. And uh, I had wines that were clearly better. And uh, okay, go. And so they gave me the go ahead. So I made whatever it was. That was in 1979. Got it. So by June of 79, they, uh, they hit the market with Taylor California Cellars. Uh, by December, they had sold 500,000 cases. Wow. They were good salespeople, and the wine caught on. It went like mad. And so the next year, I think they sold um, 1.2 million cases. Man. And then 3.8, and then 5.4, and the last five, the fifth year was 8.4. So it just went straight and you, were, you were there running yeah, that? Yeah, I was there the whole time and wow. made all those wines. It's a lot of wine. Yeah. But it was mostly Central Valley wine, to which I had added the five Some or ten percent that was necessary to, to really it. give it pizzazz to make it uh, make them good. That's a great. That story. was my secret of yeah. California Cellars, which anybody can know now. I mean, right. I don't care. I'm, I'm telling them wow, it's what happened. <laughs> it's exactly what happened. And uh, then one day, the main guy from uh, Coke came in and sat down, and he said. Uh, I have to tell you something. We're going to sell the company. Oh, man. And again. I said, why? <laughs> he said, well, you can't make any money. Uh, and I had been critical of Coke all along. I mean, I, I liked them a lot. Right. I could be open with them, though. And I always I said that you guys are making obscene profits with uh, Coca-Cola because you're selling sugar and water and, and a little bit of flavor and, and yeah. you're getting big bucks for it and a little carbonation, and you're making obscene profits. Well, they didn't like the sound of that, but they liked me, and so they allowed me to say that. When he sat down and he said, uh, we, we can't make any money, and I said, well, I've seen the paper. I, I mean, I, I see the records here. Right. You're making all kinds of money. Taylor California Sellers is very successful. And he said, I'm going to put this in terms that you use. I'll put this in your words, not mine. You cannot make obscene profits in these wines, and we want obscene profits. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it wasn't about making money. It was about making obscene money. Well, okay. see, they were comparing the wine with Coke. With Coke. With the Coke They're making the obscene profit profits margin. with Coke. They wanted to make, the same when they saw margin. that they can only make wine, wine profits with Taylor California Sellers, <laughs> then it didn't seem so good to them anymore because you got to work at it and you make a, 
wine profits, and so that's why they, they didn't like it. Must have been frustrating for you. Because you, you, it done was it. frustrating, you did though, it. but it was, it was, uh, it was worse almost when they said, "Well, I haven't told you the whole story. We've <laughs> already sold the company. Oh, we've already we've talked to the Seagram people, and the Seagram people are going to buy it. And Seagram, that's Palmasan, isn't it? Yeah, right. it's Palmasan. I said, oh, I don't think that's going to work out very well for Taylor California Sellers. Wow. And they said, uh, well, they're going to buy it. They want it. They're anxious to buy it. They want you to stay. And um, and so on. And the owner of uh, Seagram came out and uh, spent a day with him, uh, showing him everything that mm -hmm. we had and all that. And he was very upbeat and all that. But clearly a, a booze guy. I mean, a, a liquor guy. guy. Oh, yeah. 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 And, um, and I told him that uh, it, it has to be done right. You know, oh, we can do it right. We have our Masson handle. People are going to mm -hmm. handle this just fine. And I said, what I really would like to see you do is keep... California sellers separate. Don't mix it with Masson. Keep yeah. it separate. Let them compete, uh, and it'll it'll work out just fine. Have a different salespeople. Right. Well, we we know how to do that. We'll uh, we'll we'll handle the marketing. You know. Okay. Sit right. down, guy. Go away or something like that. Right. So I did. But what they did is they they put everything in Paul Masson's charge. Well, Masson people had learned to hate California sellers over the previous three or four years. Right, because you were, you were killing Masson them. Masson yeah. was killed his right. And so who are they going to promote? Uh, worse than that, they went around the country. The uh, The Taylor California sellers distributors were not the Masson distributors. Right. They took it away from the California sellers and they Give put it, it to, to them. Well, the Masson guy wasn't happy. Neither one was happy. <clears throat> the Masson guy wasn't happy because now he's got to share his shelf space with uh, the two. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> who's going to be on the bottom shelf and who's going to be at right. eye level? Well, you can know who it was. Masson had already lost the battle, and they weren't their wines weren't really up to snuff anyway. They were clearly just Central Valley ordinary wines. Mm -hmm. They were trying to get a higher price for them. It, it didn't work. Yeah, they had their better wines on the bottom. They lowered the price of Italian of. Uh, uh, of California sellers. California sellers. Kept the Masson up, killing them both. Oh. So within two years, they had killed an 8.4 million case winery. They're down to probably a million cases. By and were you there that whole time? That was happening? Yeah. But oh, I was, man. I was, start, I was doing a slow burn. I was out there in the, in the I was talking to people out in the, out the, the streets. the marketplace. I went to distributors. I, I talked to sales groups and... and uh, and they said, well, we go where we're told, and, and we have to go with the Seagram people, and they tell us, you know, we're marketing this wine here. Mm -hmm. They were lowering the price of California sellers, really effectively killing it, and they killed their Masson when they raised the price wow. to try to show people that it was a better wine. It wasn't a better wine. So and what so did you do? What did you do? You left. Well, yeah. You're out. Okay. <clears throat> uh, John, um, John Anderson, who'd been a... a Gallo guy mm -hmm. earlier. John Anderson uh, called me one time. I hadn't talked to him in 20 years. and He wanted me to meet him at an airport somewhere, and I did. And he said, we have a, a deal here we made with, um, uh, he's the chairman of it, and he said it's Whitbread in England. Okay. It owns 85%. Piero Antonori owns 10%. Okay. And Christian Bizot from uh, Bollinger uh, owns 5%. And... Uh, we want to. Uh, we bought a piece of land up at Atlas Peak in Napa Valley, and we want okay. you to develop it, develop the vineyard, and build a winery, and do that. Back to Napa. 
So I jumped at the chance. Yeah, this was, I did that. This was 1986? Uh, 86. 86, uh -huh. yeah. Got it. <clears throat> and so uh, that got me back to Napa. Right. And my wife was thrilled. <laughs> good, good. So um, uh, that worked just fine. And I had a lot of fun developing the vineyard and getting it going. I built some terraces up there. And Piero liked it a lot. And uh, then Whitbread. Whitbread, uh, they're beer people. They're not spirits at all, but they're beer. Mm -hmm. They kind of had cold feet. They didn't like staying in it, and they just decided they want out. Okay. So they wanted to sell their 85%, and they sold it to Allied Lions. So there's yet another booze company. See the Seagrams? I've been through all of them. You, you know, between Thompson Seedless Grapes and the, bo <laughs> and booze, the booze and the people. liquor corporations, you know, I'm surprised just, I'm looking pretty good at you. You look great. <laughs> and I, you look fantastic. I mean, I'm, you are a strong guy. I mean, I tell well, you. So Allied came in. That's my life story, pretty much. Uh, Allied Lions, uh, it didn't work out at all because Allied Lions, they had owned, uh, actually, Terry Clancy is the guy who... Uh, had been a friend of mine at Gallo a long time ago, and I hadn't seen him in years, but uh, I became his enemy. I didn't know it when uh, Taylor California Sellers became successful because he was a Palmasan man at that time. He worked for them. He then went to Allied Lions afterwards. And uh, so when they bought, as soon as they bought that, they couldn't wait to fire me. Oh, so no, he, no, he, Dick, uh, come on. No. He said the first thing he did, I mean, <laughs> we'd been friends all along, and then uh, uh, he wanted me to meet him in Yachtville at a little yeah. hotel there. Yeah. Can you tell me what it's about? Nope, I'll meet you there. Okay. So I walked in and uh, he said, we're picking up your uh, contract. I had a 10-year deal when I left. Uh, uh, right. I was 55 and I wanted mm -hmm. to be sure to, I worked till I was 65. And so they signed it, gave me a 10-year contract and they fiddled around with the contract. It was a little flaky, what they did. It was dishonest, actually. He said, see a, see a lawyer. Now, you're out of here. See a lawyer. Okay. So I did, and I call that good advice in the book. He gave me good advice. Because <laughs> I sued him, and, and of course, won. That's right. You did win. And, I remember yeah. that. Well, good for you. Well, I mean, all the, I had all the evidence on my side. Yeah. So they, uh, they didn't look very good in court, and the, the jury... Um, the jury actually awarded me $5.6 million. Hmm. That's not how much you collect, you know, when you do, but you collect half of it. Right. And um, I got a little more than half, actually, because I lived longer, because I got on the <laughs> retirement. I've, I've, if I had died 10 years ago, I'd have made about two and a half million, but by living another 10 years, I'm up over three now. <laughs> Good, you just, you know, just keep, eat, keep, keep yeah. eating your carrots. But I wasn't in it for the money. I wanted the job. I wanted to continue doing that, so. Well, and you know, you're still going. So after that, you what, you, you purchased Folio Dew? Yeah. Folio Dew Winery yeah. in St. Mm -hmm. Helena in the Yeah, with George Schofield. Okay. Um, we, uh, we didn't own it all ourselves. We had, I owned half of it at one time, and then we got other shareholders in there. And we made a mistake up there. I don't think I have to tell you not to make that mistake. I don't think you're going to make the mistake. But <laughs> what we did is we got too many shareholders, and they all wanted to be None of them knew anything about wine, but they all thought they did. Yeah. And it was a problem. And I could have spent 24 hours a day keeping everybody out of our hair if I'd wanted to, and I didn't. So I let them in, and I finally decided that we just got to sell this place. It's yeah. the only thing we can do, so we did. I was ready to quit anyway. I'm with you. But you still, so, are you still making, you're still making oh yeah, wine? Oh, yeah. And now I have the, the brand Richard G. Peterson brand, uh, Pinot Noir, 
uh, red Pinot Noir from uh, Santa Lucia Highlands in Monterey County. Oh, fantastic. That same vineyard area where we had Santa Lucia Vineyard when I was down there. That's a great area. That's where we're getting the grapes. So you get Pinot it's from there. Pinot. And now, where, do you I make it down? You well, I'll, I, I'll, I'll trade you. Do, do you yeah. make it down there or bring bring the grapes bring up, it up here? here? Bring the grapes up here and make them. Nice. In, um, good. Napa. Good, good, good. And, so you're uh, still making wine. Aged in barrels there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Nice. And I make sparkling wine, same thing. Sparkling, the only thing, the yeah. sparkling wine... Um, Sparkling wine, I have a, um, I have to do something about the sparkling wine. I really like the sparkling wine uh, f- when it's on the yeast about three years. I just think it's a beautiful sparkler, a real nice pink wine, yeah. Pinot Noir, 100%. And um, uh, the problem is the marketing guy, um, we've talked about this several times, he says it's easier for him to sell at $100 a bottle, uh, the sparkling wine, if I leave it on the yeast seven years, because he wants to compete with Bollinger, the, right. the, the recently disgorged stuff. Yeah. I don't really like sparkling wine that's been on the yeast seven years. It's a long time. It's not pink anymore. It's kind of a not even orange. Sort of well, more, the flavor more, changes The totally. flavor is too yeasty. It's, well, the fruit, you, yeah. you, you lose the fruit. I mean, That's exactly. Exactly. I think, I you, think got it you and I... Yeah. We haven't tasted a lot of wines together, but yeah. I, I sense we, we're, we're both food I bet guys. We would taste the same. We're food yeah, guys. And we do. Yeah, I get uh, that. So I really like it. Um, in fact, I think I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to bring. I have disgorged <laughs> some of the 2014 and 2015 now, and I'm going to bring a bottle uh, sometime when you feel like having a sip of wine in the middle of the day. Uh, That's just about you know. Catch, <laughs> catch me on catch me on a Friday. All right now. Before I let you go, mm-hmm. I do have to say something because I think there's a lot of folks that I, I hope that listen to this who are in the business, in production. Yes, yes. And there's something you invented that I didn't oh. know about <laughs> and all my peers who are in the wine production probably don't know about. You invented and came up with the design of the steel yeah, the Peterson, the barrel, barrel, pallet, the Peterson yeah. barrel pallet. No one's ever, I never hear it called. They don't call Peter, it Peterson, they, no. Because you designed this thing yeah. many years ago, and instead of patenting it, you oh, gave, gave, it, you gave, gave it the finish. design to yeah. the wine industry. You didn't make any money off it. I was a hero that day. Uh, I got a standing ovation. There were about 300 people down at Fresno at the WITS, uh, mm-hmm. WITS conference. Yeah, I, it was... Uh, I, I felt like a hero then. It was, well, they, they were really pleased. I mean, they liked and it, and it was free. <laughs> well, it was <laughs> to those of you who don't know who might not be in wine production, this is the, uh, it's called a barrel, we call it a barrel pallet, and it's a steel. Uh, Made of steel tubing, square steel, tubing. Steel, steel mm. square tubing, and basically holds two barrels very securely, and they're stackable. So you can take it and stack these things five, the six, seven, mm. eight high. Um, they save so much space it's incredible they're easy to work because you're never having to deadlift a barrel you know which is for our, we're all getting older in our backs and it's just and it's been around the industry for 20 or 30 years i did it in I 75 yeah. 74 is when i did it the first the first ones were made in 74 and we had them at the monterey vineyard that's yeah. where the first barrel racks were i got the idea though at bv um andre had built a barrel Racks right, out of uh, four by fours, mm-hmm. and they're fixed in place. And then OSHA got involved, and they wanted me to. When I made new ones, they wanted me to have a minimum of seven feet in the walkways. Seven feet interfered with the design of it because I could get four barrels high at BV. Right. Uh, if I did it that way, 
but seven foot uh, walkway, I, I'd lose a whole row of barrels. Mm -hmm. So I could only stack three high, and it wasn't very efficient. It wasn't very efficient anyway. Right. And I kept thinking, I've got to get rid of these barrel racks somehow. I got to make this automated. Theo Rosenbrand, bless his heart, he he, uh, his crew, they had to put a tire on the end of the row, and then you had to. Uh, you had to pump the wine out of the barrels in the rack. Then, while the barrel was empty, you'd roll it down to the end, let it drop onto the barrel onto the uh, tire, and then roll it on these rails on four by four rails laid on the ground. He'd roll the barrels out, and then wash them out, clean them, um, get them ready, make sure they're not leaking, and then bring them back up empty, lift them back up with a hoist. Get them back in the barrel racks, put the bungs up. Oh my then gosh! Then you go in and fill them with a gas pump right. type filler. It was it was awful to no, do that. No forklift. Yeah. No, no, no forklift. You yeah. couldn't use a forklift anywhere along the line, whether it was cleaning or washing barrels. You had to do everything by hand. Right. And I kept thinking, I've got to get this somehow on, on barrel racks. Behringer started. They they had the idea of of making of putting the barrels on racks, mm -hmm. but they had great big wooden pallets. And uh, it took a huge forklift just to handle it, and it didn't work very well. It was too bulky. So too I went over to see because yeah. they got they had gotten the idea too. They knew that there had to be you had right. to have a rack system. But you did it. And I said to myself, I'm an engineer. What the hell? I can. Do You're an that. engineer, and you know, look. So I got steel it, tubing, and I figured this will do it. We bent it a little bit so it flushed, so it would mesh with the barrel around the, the curvature of the barrel. And um, look at you are an engineer. A chemical engineer, yeah. a winemaker. Yeah. You started with, you know, your. I should be able to you, design. You started with the ice cream bags and, right. and, the, and the stick to poke them, and, and you ended up. You, you've been, yeah. and you're still creating. I know you probably got things going right now. And I know. <laughs> I, I, I know that. All right. Well, Dick Peterson, thank you so much for coming here today. What a great story. Um, the, the the story of um, the post prohibition, you know, resurgence of quality wine in this country. So. Thank you so it much for being a, here. Thank you very much, Doug. It's been All a right. pleasure being here. Thanks. So that was the incredible story of Richard Peterson. The truth is we really just hit the highlights. There's a lot more to his story in his book, The Winemaker, which I highly recommend. As a winemaker, he hit up against every possible bump in the road, in some cases multiple times. And yet you can tell he still loves growing grapes and making wine. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. If you like the taste, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes as that helps other people find the podcast. Thanks very much for listening and for all the emails you've sent with feedback and ideas for future episodes. Anytime you want to reach us, just send an email to podcast at schafervineyards.com. I read them all and really appreciate the support. We'll see you next time.